0: I mean, you can take your Bibles and go ahead and open up with me to the book of Psalms. And uh, let's bow for a word of prayer before we read. Lord, our prayer this morning is that what we just sang would indeed be true, that our souls would be satisfied in you alone, Lord. Lord, we are tempted to look to every other thing this world offers to find contentment and to find satisfaction. We're tempted, Lord, to, to think that it's everything the world offers that we need to have real joy and satisfaction. And Lord, remind us this morning that, that all the joy, all the satisfaction, the contentment we need is found in you. So, Lord, I, again, our prayer as we turn to your word is that you would speak to the hearts of your people that that Christ would be magnified, that our souls would be steadied and satisfied in you. And we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. Um, We're going to be in Psalm 37 this morning, so you might want to flip there in your Bible. Psalm 37. Uh, as, As we've been making our way through the Psalms, what I'm trying to do is cover one psalm every week as we do through this, as we go through this. Now, that's, that's easy to do some weeks, and it's a little more challenging to do other weeks. So this week, it is a 40-verse psalm. So, um, this is a hard psalm to cover in one week. That's what we're going to do. Um, so what that means is we're not going to be able to, to look at every verse in detail. It's important to me in this study, I think the best way we can do it is to cover these psalms as a whole. Because they're written as songs. They're written, I think, to be read that way. And so there will be some songs, uh, some psalms, like Psalm 119, that we'll have to take several weeks on. But we're going to cover this whole psalm this morning. We're going to spend most of our time in the first 11 verses of it because the first 11 verses really set the tone and tenor for the whole psalm. And this is a psalm that would be classified as a wisdom psalm, which is not, which is not your typical psalm. So if you just sat down and read through Psalm 37, really, it reads more like something you might find in the book of Proverbs than it does something you would find in the psalms. Uh, most of the psalms, it's like we're getting to listen in as the psalmist prays to God or sings to God or cries out to God. But that's not how this psalm is written. Psalm 37 isn't addressed to God. Psalm 37 is addressed to us. So, So it's not a psalm of praise to God. It's a psalm of wisdom for the people of God. So this is a psalm that's written to tell us how to live God's way in God's world. That's what wisdom is in the Bible, how to live God's way in God's world. Particularly, this psalm is telling us how to live God's way in God's world in light of all of the suffering and hardship and injustice that we see in this world. And, And really, I can't think of a better psalm to look at at the beginning of a new year than this psalm because Here's what I feel 100% certain every single person in here is going to experience over the next 12 months. You are going to experience hard things. There are going to be lots of things in your life over the next 12 months that you would not have chosen for yourself. There are going to be lots of things in your life over the next 12 months that are not going to go the way you hoped they would go. And this psalm is written to help us know how to navigate through times like that and how to navigate through really a world like that. And I don't think I have to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince you that this world feels upside down, right? I don't have to, I don't have to convince you that there are so many things in this world that don't seem like they go the way they should go. Like if, if I'm writing the script, then it's going to be the people who know the Lord and love the Lord who are going to have the best jobs and make the most money and have the cleanest doctor's reports and live the longest lives, if I'm writing the script. And if I were writing the script, it would be the people who reject God, who would face all the trials and have the worst jobs and, and have the most difficult time and die the earliest death. That's the way I would do it if I was in control. Thankfully, I'm not in control, though, and that's not the way... It works. Just one simple example. David Brainerd, the great missionary to the American Indians, died at the age of 29 years old. Robert Murray McShane, maybe one of the greatest pastors ever in Scotland, died at the age of 29. Meanwhile, you think of Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, lives to the age of 91. So we're looking at these godly men who die at 29 and this other guy who who lives all the way to the age of 91. How does that make sense? Or maybe just the Bring it a little closer to home. Maybe you're doing your best to follow the Lord, you genuinely trust in the Lord, and meanwhile, you're you're stuck in a dead-end job, or your your business is struggling, you're, you're barely making ends meet, and you look at this guy who you graduated with, who you know, that guy is an absolute scoundrel, and he's already made it to the top of the company. His business is flourishing. He's putting pictures on social media where he's taking taking vacations to Europe and you barely have gas money to make it to to, to St. Augustine or Fernandina for a weekend. Or maybe you and your husband are doing your best to honor the Lord. You're doing your best to have a marriage that makes much of Christ and you have been trying unsuccessfully for eight years to get pregnant with no fruit. And meanwhile, you work with a girl who has a different boyfriend every three months and she's pregnant every time you turn around. Why, why does she get kids and not you? Th- those are the sorts of perplexities we struggle with in life. And you know, one of the great things is we find out in this psalm, David wrote this psalm when he was an old man. He's going to tell us that in verse 25, 26. That he's late in his years when he's writing this psalm. And just think about the kind of life that David had lived. What did David experience during much of his life? I mean, just think of the early years where David spent years of his life running and hiding from King Saul. And when David got chances to get back at Saul, he had several chances where he could have taken Saul's life and instead he did the right thing. He tried to honor God, he showed Saul mercy, and what was his reward in the moment for showing Saul mercy? Well, within a few weeks, Saul would try to kill him again. So David, who was doing right, was spending his life hiding in a cave. And meanwhile, Saul, who had turned his back on God, was living his life in the palace. How is that, how does that make sense? And David understood the sort of tension that can create in our hearts. Why did they have that? This person who hates God seems to get blessings while a person who's genuinely seeking to follow the Lord seems to get all the suffering. How does it work that way? And so David is writing this psalm trying to give us uh, some spiritual perspective. He's writing this psalm to try to help us know how to navigate through life in an upside-down world in a way that honors the Lord. Now, one other thing before we start reading. Um, like Psalm 34, Psalm 37 is another acrostic Psalm. Do you remember what that is? So you have several Psalms where, where they work through the out, al- the Hebrew alphabet. In this Psalm, it does it every other verse. So verse 1 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 3 begins with the second letter. This obviously isn't going to be reflected in English, but verse 3 begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 5 begins with the third. Verse 7 begins with the fourth. And it works that way. So it's just a reminder, the Psalms are poetry. So there's an artistic flair to them. And it's also written that way to help uh, as a memory aid. It would make people who are reading this in Hebrew, it would make it much easier to memorize. Now the flip side of that is, Since it's written as an acrostic, it's for us, it is much harder to outline. Because rather than just putting his thoughts in logical, sequential order, what the psalmist does is he's having to take all these different thoughts and he's having to match them with the Hebrew letter in the alphabet that best fits. And so one writer described it, it's like he took all of his points and threw them in a dryer. And it all comes out tumbled up. So it feels like, as you read it, It bounces all over the place and that's because it's written in this sort of acrostic pattern. Okay, so we're going to make some some broad points that we'll try to hang our thoughts on and we'll read it just a little bit at a time. So here's the the first point and then we'll read. Number one, the psalmist is going to give us heart attitudes to purge. Heart attitudes to purge. If your Bible's open to Psalm 37, let's read the first 11 verses together. David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you'll look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth. And shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So so David identifies a couple of temptations that we have to watch out for in our hearts. Did you notice as we read that? That three times David uses the phrase, do not fret. Do not fret. That word fret, the Hebrew word means to burn. It's like David is saying, do not let your heart begin to burn with frustration. Don't let your heart begin to burn with bitterness. Uh, Don't let yourself get all worked up. Worked up about what? Well, David's concern is that we'll get worked up about. He uses the word evildoers. Or especially his concern is that we'll get worked up over the prosperity of evildoers. Right? It's the same sort of things I was mentioning a minute ago. Let, let's say you're, you're a single Christian and you're trying to use your singleness in a way that honors the Lord. You want to get married, but you're not married yet. And meanwhile, you have a friend who is living with absolutely no morals. And she's scheduled to get married next month. You're still single. Why is she getting married while you're still single. Your neighbor who has no scruples at all is raking money in hand over fist while you're struggling to pay the bills. Do you know what can happen in times like that? What can happen is your heart can begin to seethe. Your heart can become like a cauldron that just starts bubbling with anger, with bitterness, with frustration, with confusion. In fact, David adds the phrase not only do not fret, he says, nor be envious. What can happen is it can very quickly go from frustration to envy. In other words, it can go from, I can't believe that person has that, to, why don't I have that? It can go from, why does it happen to them, to, why doesn't that happen for me? I need that. Why did they get that and not me? And David is warning us to guard our hearts against that sort of anger and that sort of envy so what David is telling us here is the most important thing we do in times like this on the negative side is we have to keep a close watch on our own hearts see the biggest threat that you and I face as we watch a world seem to sink in evil and as we watch evil people seem to prosper the biggest threat we face is not those evil people. The biggest threat we face is our own hearts. The biggest danger for me is not this evil guy who seems to catch every break. The biggest danger for me is the envy in my own heart. The biggest danger for me is the bitterness that will in the blink of an eye begin to sprout up in my own heart. And so what David is saying is, more than you worry about what all the people around you have or don't have, Worry about what's happening in your own heart. In fact, look at how he says it in verse 8. He says, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It only causes harm. David is saying when we let that sort of anger and envy begin to seethe in our hearts, it won't lead to any good thing in your life. So keep a close eye on your heart. Now, let me just make a, a quick practical side point here. Um, social media can make this sort of struggle infinitely harder, right? Where, especially when you go through seasons in life where things are hard. Uh, maybe your job is hard. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe your marriage is struggling. There's hard things going on. Your kids aren't acting right. And then you log on to Instagram or you log on to Facebook and you see this person who mocks your faith, who could care less about God. And man, it looks like they have the perfect house and the perfect job and the perfect marriage and the perfect kids and the perfect vacation. So if, if, you have, if you have even the slightest spark of discontentment or frustration or envy or anger in your heart, social media can be like throwing gasoline on it. So it, it will be a good thing for you to develop in your life over this next year to plan to take regular breaks from social media. Okay, if you feel yourself struggling with any of this stuff, it is not helping your heart to regularly log on to Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is. And because the inclination is in your struggle, you start comparing yourself to what you think is all this great stuff going on in everybody else's life. So so David is telling us here that we got to root out this bitterness and this envy that will grow in our hearts. So, So we need to cut out of our lives anything in our lives that seems to be feeding that. So maybe, maybe as we go into 2024, just plan one way or another that you're going to take regular fasts from social media. Social media is not all bad. I'm not saying that. We have a church Facebook page that Mandy does a fantastic job with. But it can be good just to plan in advance. I'm going to take, I'm going to take February off. Anytime you feel a sort of discontentment growing in your heart, decide you're going to take the next four, six, whatever weeks off of that. Because it's one of the tools that can be used to fuel the very things that he's warning us against here. Okay, And the the other thing that he's trying to encourage us with here is David adds that we shouldn't be envious of the fame and the wealth and the popularity of the wicked because it's all going to be so short-lived. Look again. Pick up in verse 9. Look at how he says it in verses 9 and 10. He says, For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Do you see what David's saying? He's saying it is foolish for us to look at people who reject God, who seem to be prospering, and envy those people. Because any sort of prosperity, any sort of abundance, any sort of blessing that they have will all be short-lived. Maybe a good illustration would be this. Imagine a camera. You're watching a TV and a camera is zoomed in on this wicked guy who is enjoying this fantastic meal. Okay, you know the man. This is somebody who hates God. This is somebody who has harmed other people, but he is eating the best looking food you've ever seen in your life. It is a Filet mignon and lobster, it's the sort of meal you know you couldn't afford, right? He's eating this, you're going home to eat Hamburger Helper and you're wondering, why does that guy get that and I don't get this sort of stuff? Why does it work out? I should get that. And you feel envy growing in your heart over this good thing this evil man is enjoying. Okay, now, now imagine that that camera begins to zoom out. And you realize that this guy's enjoying this great meal in a prison cell. In fact, you realize that this guy, this guy's on death row, and this is his last meal. So yeah, he's enjoying filet mignon, but in a few hours, he's going to be strapped to the electric chair. Do you still want to change places with that guy? Well, that's what David says it is for, it is for all of the wicked. How foolish is it for a believer who has found real salvation in the Lord to get envious of the fame or the wealth or the prosperity of someone who doesn't even know the Lord. If you could just zoom out a little bit you would not want to trade places with that person. If the camera lens could just zoom out a year, five years, ten years, maybe a hundred years in the future you would not be envious anymore. So Let what you know about the future temper how you view things in the present. That's what David is saying. Okay, so we know where this is all going. We know God has promised he'll take care of his people. God's promised there's an eternal reward coming. God's promised the wicked will be punished. God's promised all of that. So we know what the future holds. So in light of that, David is saying our hearts in the present should be steadied. Okay, so purge envy, purge anger, purge frustration here's the second part number two he gives us heart attitudes to pursue heart attitudes to pursue so so we don't want resentment and we don't want bitterness and we don't want envy so what do we replace it with look at verse three David says in verse three trust in the Lord and do good dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. David is saying, whether, uh, rather than fretting over the wicked, trust the Lord. Why does it seem sometimes like the wicked are winning in this world? And it's like David is saying, well, frankly, that's none of your business. Well, why does it seem sometimes like it's the people who reject God and they have all this prosperity? Why does it work that way? And and David is saying, in fact, we could even back up and say it this way. You know, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. All the resources in the world belong to God, right? And God is free to distribute his resources however he sees fit, and God has a plan in that. Now, the fact that I don't understand God's plan doesn't mean the plan's not there. So it's not my job to understand, to get an answer for why things happen the way they happen. My responsibility, David is saying, is to trust the Lord trust God and stop fretting about all the things that are above your pay grade trust that God's in control trust that God has a good plan trust that God's plan is always right and David adds trust the Lord and do good Well, but this world is so messed up, I can't make sense of it. It's not your responsibility to make sense of it. It's your responsibility to trust the Lord and to do good. Do good means do what's right in the eyes of God. You may not understand how it's all going to work out in the end, but you can do the next right thing. That's what we're called to do as Christians. I don't have to understand how this whole thing is going to play out. God doesn't hold me responsible for that. But God holds me responsible to handle this next conversation in a way that pleases Him. God holds me responsible to walk through these decisions today in a way that pleases Him. Trust the Lord and do good. And then he adds, and dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. That means don't lose sight of all of God's blessings in the moment. Now we we understand as Christians our ultimate re- reward's in eternity, right? We are not trying to lay up treasure on earth. We're living to lay up treasure in heaven. But every single day you and I feast on the faithfulness of God every day. All you have needed, his hand has supplied today. Every day, we're called to enjoy every bite of the goodness of God that we have in our lives. Ralph Davis worded it this way. He said, I think contemporary servants of Christ can sometimes be rather blind to such crass physical provisions. In the middle of heavy trouble, do I still have daily bread? I may be in the pit of despair, but am I in That despair at my kitchen table staring down at a bowl of cereal. I may be at a loss in some dire turmoil, but do I still have a non-leaking roof over my head and a mattress underneath my restless body? Shouldn't I notice these gifts? Sometimes the weight of your troubles can cause you to lose sight of basic provisions that are staring you in the face. I think that's what David has in mind when he says, feast on the faithfulness of God of the Lord. And then verse 4 is probably the most well-known verse from this psalm where David writes, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And I know you're interested to know that Oprah Winfrey says that that is her favorite Bible verse. And she says that what that verse means is that we should delight in all of the good God-like virtues. We should delight in compassion and we should delight in love and we should delight in kindness. And if you'll just delight in those virtues, good things will happen in your life. In other words, she says that this is a verse that teaches a kind of spiritual karma. Well, if you will do good things, good things will come back into your life, which of course completely misses the point of the passage. David says, delight yourself in the Lord. And you know by now, when you see that word Lord in the Old Testament, in all caps, it's letting you know that it's a translation of the divine name of God. When you see Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, that's it's what's called the tetragrammaton. This is Yahweh. That's the word that's being translated. So David's not saying delight in common, ambiguous, godly virtues. David is saying, delight yourself in the personal, particular God of the Bible. Delight yourself in Yahweh. Delight yourself in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Delight yourself in the God who gave us his law. Delight yourself in the God who speaks with authority. Delight yourself in the God who came to us in the person of Jesus. Delight yourself in the God who rules his world. Delight yourself in the God who saves his people. Delight yourself in that God. That word, that word delight is a good word. It is used in um, Isaiah 66 to describe a newborn baby delighting in its mother's milk. And we've all seen a baby that is crying and fussy and discontented. And then that baby is handed off to his mom to begin to nurse. And all the crying and all the fussing and all the discontentment stops. And that baby just dives in delighted. Well, that's the picture that he's painting here. We're called to delight ourselves in the Lord. Turn into the Lord like a newborn baby turns into its mom. Feast on the Lord. You remember Psalm 36 says, This is a God who invites us to come drink of the rivers of his pleasure. This is a God who invites us to come sit at the table he spread for us. This is a God who invites us to come take our shelter underneath the shadow of his wing. And now the psalmist says, come and delight in this God. And I should say, you can't, listen church, you can't delight in a God that you don't know. You can't delight in God if you don't know God. So make knowing God The number one pursuit of your life. Do whatever it takes to to fuel your affections for God. This is the whole reason why we read the Bible and why we memorize and why we study and why we pray and why we meditate and why we fast and why we fellowship and why we do all these things because we want to know God. And you have to know God to learn to delight in God. So David says, come Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in God. So make sure you get this. Um, If you're miserable in life right now and you've convinced yourself that you won't be miserable anymore if X happened, you're deceiving yourself. If you're miserable right now, getting married will not make that go away. You'll just be a miserable married person. Getting rich will not make that go away. You will be a miserable, rich person. This is Augustine, that famous prayer by Augustine where he said, You have made us, O Lord, for Yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in You. That's what David is saying here. Our hearts are restless until they learn to rest in God. So he's saying, come, learn to delight yourself in the Lord. And what's the second part of that? Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, the point is not, if you can figure out how to pull all the right levers with God, he'll give you whatever you want. This is how God's often presented in prosperity theology. Like, God's the genie, and faith is the, uh, how you rub the bottle, and if you have the right faith, you can rub the bottle, and you can get the genie to give you whatever you want. That's not the point. David's not saying, figure out the right steps to take with God, and God will meet all of your selfish desires. Now, David's point is that as we delight in the Lord, God begins to reshape our desires. And you realize, this is absolutely true for me, my biggest problem is not that I have a lot of wants that aren't being satisfied. My biggest problem is I have a lot of wants that are wrong. There are so many things I desire in my life that are askew. They're they're things that I shouldn't really desire. And the promise here is that as we learn to delight ourselves in the Lord, God graciously begins to reshape the things that we desire. So as we delight in God, all of these things that clutter up our heart and feed us with envy and covetousness, as we delight in the Lord, those things begin to melt away. God reshapes our desires and then God is pleased to fulfill all of those desires. Think of it like a father with his children. So imagine a dad who has a son who's going a hundred miles an hour down a bad path. He has rejected the Lord. He's living his life in rebellion. And as he's doing this, he's asking his dad to give him things. Things that his dad knows are just going to help him keep going down this path. So the dad's not going to give those things to that son because he knows they'll just further lead to his ruin. But on the other hand, imagine he has another son who loves the Lord and is on a path to honor and please the Lord. And that son is asking for things that the father knows will be for his good. Well, the father is is more than pleased to give those kinds of gifts to that son. He wants... To give his son things that will lead to his good. Well, what this psalm is reminding us of is there, there are things right now in my heart that I desire, that I want. Things that you want in your heart right now that would lead to ruin in your life. That God doesn't give us. He's a good father that does not give us things that are going to lead to our eternal ruin. But as we delight in the Lord, God begins to reshape those desires. God begins to call away those desires that aren't for our eternal good. He creates the right sort of desires. And then as the perfect Father, He is pleased to meet those desires. So in the middle of an upside-down world where there's all sorts of dissatisfaction and disillusionment, you could say the primary call of these first 11 verses is learn to delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart look back at the text verse 5 here's some more positive instruction of what to pursue he says commit your way to the Lord trust also in him and he'll bring it to pass he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do you get that opening phrase in verse 5? Commit your way to the Lord. That word commit, it, it literally means to roll. It's like he's saying roll your way onto the Lord. Take all of your circumstances and all of your struggles and all of your angst and all of your burden and roll it onto the Lord. And then he says trust in him and he'll bring it to pass in his way. And in his time, and even adds, rest in the Lord. That means be still and wait on the Lord. God has not forgotten what he's doing. It may seem right now like like righteousness and justice are being eclipsed by evil. But he's saying it's not going to be that way forever. He adds that phrase about the noonday sun. He's saying one day righteousness and justice are going to break through and they're going to shine like the noonday sun. So what he's doing is he's reminding us that all the evil and all the angst and all the struggle, it's not going to be this way forever. Sometimes we need to hear that. Listen, suffering Christian, it's not going to be this way forever. It's not going to be this way forever. I had a a professor in, in college who was a famous ultra runner. David Horton is his name. He had the, the record of the Appalachian Trail for a while and the Pacific Crest Trail for a while and a race across America. And um, there was a saying that he, he said he regularly repeated to himself. And the saying was, it never always gets worse. Because we can start saying to ourselves, it's only going to get worse from here. It always gets worse. And he said he had to regularly remind himself that's never true. It never always gets worse. If you will just push through, there is relief coming. And that's what David's reminding us of here. One day righteousness and justice are going to shine like the noonday sun. It's not just going to get worse. God promises there is relief coming for his people. And then verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Does that phrase sound familiar to you, the first part of that verse? The meek shall inherit the earth. Where do we hear that at? Jesus quotes this, right? In the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth. Meek, of course, is talking about the humble. This is is those who have, have chosen the path of patient faith. And God promises that for those who humbly trust Him, they will inherit the earth. Now, how, how is that designed to help us? Well, think about how this would help in your own life. Man, it's, it's so easy. Right, let me just be practical with it. Let's say you're struggling because, man, I have that friend I went to high school with and they've just bought that piece of property and I, I'm, I'm renting somewhere. So I haven't got to buy. They have, I have five acres. I only have one acre. They have a hundred acres. I have three acres. Why did they get all that land? Right? And David is saying, don't you know, one day God's people are going to inherit the earth. God's going to create a new... Do you believe this, Christian? One day God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and it's all going to be yours to enjoy forever. Forever. So he's saying we we have this promise that all of the blessings and all of the benefits of God are going to be ours to enjoy one day forever. And he even adds in verse 11, and right now we get to know an abundance of peace. That's what we get to know now. Yeah, there's struggle and there's turmoil, but right now in Christ, we can have an abundance of peace. Now, I need to say, peace is not our natural position with God. Our natural position with God is actually hostility. Our our natural position with God is actually enmity. Just like everyone born in America on December uh, ninth, 1941 or in the following years, was born at war with Japan. That's the day we declared war against Japan, so every U.S. citizen, everyone who came into the world from that day forward until there was a peace treaty entered this world as an American at war with Japan. Well, the Bible's going to say when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they declared war against God. And all of their descendants come into this world at war with God. And that that begins to play out in our lives right away. Right away, we begin to throw off the commandments of God. Right away, we make declarations. God, you're not going to rule me, I'm going to rule me. You're not king, I'm king. We're the kings and queens of our own lives. And, of course, the problem is that people who are at war with God will die and face the judgment of God. But Jesus came to win peace for us. That's what's happening at the cross is all of the hostility, all of the enmity that should be directed at us as sinners, all of the weapons of warfare that should be aimed in our direction were turned to Jesus at the cross And he took all of the enmity and all of the hostility and all of the wrath for his people as he dies in our place and rises from the dead. So that now everyone who trusts in Christ, that means you are found in Jesus by faith. You give up living for yourself and living as if you're king. You repent of that and you put your faith entirely in Jesus and what he's done for you. For everyone who does that, the war's over. There's no hostility left. There's no enmity left. We now have peace with God, and he's reminding us here, even in our day-to-day life, we can know this abundance of peace. You don't have to live with this constant angst, this constant discontentment, this constant envy. In Christ, there's freedom from that. Okay, so we, we purge fretting and envy and seething. We pursue this sort of humble faith. We pursue this sort of resting in God. We pursue hearts that delight in the Lord. And then that leads to the third category. We'll move through this very quickly. Number three, we get a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Really, from verse 12 on, that's what this psalm is. It's just setting up a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. What they live for, what the future holds, what they are, what they can expect from God. So let's just read it in big pieces. Pick up in verse 12, go through verse 17. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day's coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are, upright, who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Do you see what he's saying? He presents the wicked in verse 12 as if they're making their plans and they're gnashing their teeth at God and his people. And how does God respond to that? God Laughs The way you might laugh at your three-year-old nephew who's convinced he can beat you in a wrestling match. It's like God laughs at what they're doing. God is not worried one iota about it. So why in the world would we worry about it? God laughs at their plans. And he says that all of their swords and all of their weapons that they've designed to fight against God will one day be turned and pierce their own hearts. A great... Old Testament example of this is, think of the story of Haman in the book of Esther. you remember Haman? He's that guy who has designed this elaborate plan to have Mordecai murdered. He's even built these huge gallows where he's planned he's going to see Mordecai hanged. And what ends up happening with Haman? Haman ends up getting caught in his own plan, and Haman ends up getting hanged on his own gallows. And what David is saying is that in the end, that's what will happen to everyone who fights against God. Now, he's clear that that today we may suffer at the hands of the wicked. Today, your livelihood might even be threatened by the wicked. You may have far less than those who hate God. But do you see how David says it's better to have little and to be righteous? In other words, it is better to have little and to be right with God than to have abundance and to be categorized as an enemy of God. The the wicked, he gives the picture, it's like they might be holding all of their plunder in their arms, but the day's coming when their arms are going to be broken under the judgment of God. And Meanwhile, God's arm upholds His people. Verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke, they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay. By the way, borrowing and not repaying is what you call stealing. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Do you see where he says God knows the days of his people? That doesn't just mean God's aware of it. It means God's involved in it. God is actively at work in the days of his people. This is is Romans 8, 28 in Old Testament form. God is working all the days of his people for their good. And it's going to end with his people enjoying an eternal inheritance. Even though he adds that some of those days that God knows for his people are days of famine. But even in those days of famine, God does not abandon his people. In the middle of your lack and in the middle of your need, our hearts can be satisfied in God. Verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and He delights in His way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with His hand. I have been young and now am old; yet I have not seen the righteous. I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Do you see how God blesses his people? David says that God orders, or your translation might say God establishes the steps of his people. It means God gives, he gives his people solid footing, even as they walk across treacherous ground. And he says that even when his people stumble, he's talking about stumbling in trials. Again, this is something you will stumble. You're going to find a trial that will make your knees buckle likely this year. The, the world's going to catch you with a left hook and your knees are going to give way, but the promise here is that God will keep his people from being utterly cast down. God will uphold his people in those times of of stumbling. Have you ever watched, have you ever watched family members as they're walking with an older relative whose balance isn't great? So my grandmother, uh, who I love dearly, turns 90 uh, in just a couple of months, and she was at our house a few months ago and over the last couple years she's had a couple of of falls that have injured her and as, as she was walking out with my aunt to the car at the end of the day She was just surrounded. Somebody was on one side and somebody's standing on the other elbow and somebody's walking behind her to make sure that if she stumbles, she doesn't fall down. Well, that's the picture here of what God does for his people. You you may not even understand how, but in God's great goodness and God's great providence, God upholds his people even as they stumble. John Calvin writes about a period in his life where his wife had passed away. And he was going through a season of of tremendous darkness and tremendous grief. And in the middle of that, he wrote a letter to a friend. And here's what he wrote in that letter. He wrote, I do what I can to keep myself from being overwhelmed with grief, which would certainly have overcome me had the Lord who raises up the prostrate, strengthens the weak, and refreshes the weary stretched forth his hand from heaven to me. It, listen, this is the testimony of every Christian. You have had times in your life where you say, I most certainly would have collapsed if God would not have reached down his hand from heaven to hold me up. That's what David promises that God does for his people. And then verse 25 is this great testimony. David is just giving the testimony of what he had experienced in his life. He had never seen the righteous forsaken. He had never seen their children begging uh, begging for bread. The point David's making is, God never forsakes his people. I don't know where you are right now in life. I don't know how dark it might seem. I don't know how difficult it may be. But Christian, I can assure you, God has not and God will not forsake you. God does not forsake his children. isn't that better? Isn't that better than having all of those things that your heart tends to envy after? You and I have the promise of God. Hold on to that. And notice how David keeps pointing forward in these verses to our descendants. Did you notice how many times he mentions that? He says, let me find it. Verse 25, I've been young and now I'm old, have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Verse 26, he's merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Verse 28, for the Lord loves justice, does not forsake his saints, they're preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. What what matters more, having all the things that you want right now in the moment, or having a legacy of faith, that's established for your descendants. What matters more, having a bigger house and a better job and more money or having a line of descendants who know the Lord? It's true, your your great-grandkids could profit from houses and lands. All of that's good. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But wouldn't it be even better for them to profit eternally from the fate that they saw in your life? So what David is laying out here is it's like the righteous and the wicked have two different legacies that they're focused on. Then we'll finish the chapter up. Pick up in verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he's judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I've seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Do you get the word that he mentioned several times? That the righteous will dwell in the land, and he uses that word forever. He uses it in verse 18. Their inheritance shall be forever. He uses it in verse 28. They are preserved forever, verse 29, and they'll dwell in it forever. The, the promise here is that, that God's blessings for His people don't just last a few days, they don't just last a few years, they last forever. It might seem like, it might seem like the wicked are ahead after the first hundred yards, but it's not a hundred yard dash, it's a marathon. So stop focusing on what's happening with everyone around you and run for the prize in the last two verses but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord he is their strength in the time of trouble and the Lord shall help them and deliver them he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him Christian God will help you God will deliver you God will strengthen you God will save you In fact, don't miss the first line of that The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Every good thing we have is from the Lord, including our salvation. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us. God is the one who graciously convicted us of our sin. God is the one who graciously opened our eyes so that we saw Jesus as our only hope. God is the one who brought us to faith So God has conquered our greatest enemy and God has met our greatest need. So why would we fret over any other need? And notice David doesn't say that God helps those who help themselves. David says that God helps those who trust Him. So Christian, trust Him. Trust Him. Fight against... Listen, I have no doubt because I have a heart like yours... That there are hearts in here this morning where you have been struggling with frustration. It's been seething over things not going the way you thought they should. There's been envy and resentment that's been building. Well, take David's call this morning as a gracious call from God to repent. That's how we purge our hearts of this stuff. It is an ongoing fight and we repent. We call it what it is. We recognize it as the deadly poison that, he is, that it is and we turn from it. And we cast ourselves on the Lord. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. And, And communion, which we're about to share, is just a tiny little picture of that. As we eat the bread and drink the juice, we're saying, we have come to delight ourselves in the Lord in faith. We've realized that everything we need is not going to be found out there somewhere. Everything we need is found in Jesus and what He's done for us. His life given, His death, His resurrection. That's where we've come to find real delight. So let's take a few minutes to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. I'll give you some time to pray there in your seat. And then we'll share in communion together. And just take this time to do some some serious heart searching, some soul evaluation. And where you see any seeds of this in your life, repent of it. Repent of it. Thank God. Thank God for what he's promised in the future. Instead of envying the guy on death row, be reminded of what God's promised his people. Trust in him. Rest in him. So I'll give you a few minutes to go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll come close this.